Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. Whoever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I know, a little subtle that time, right? My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who is currently hard at work developing a brand new weapon for the American military, Mr. Ryan Seabold! What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? Not bad, not bad. So funny thing, uh, I actually record in a room with my cats. My cats like to cuddle up behind my microphone and sleep uh, while I record these episodes. Adorable. But when I do the intros, they're always very loud. And so I just got the hardest side eye from my cat, (laughs) Oliver, right now. (laughs) As I brought you in, dude's like, bruh. Bruh, what's going really? on, man? We really right now? <laughs> with this, with you and the yelling? <laughs> of course, they have to be right there, too, right? Like, you couldn't just... You have the whole house to yourself. You can go anywhere you want, cats. And yet, here you are. <laughs> correct, correct. Now, as I just mentioned right now, pretty interesting that we actually have somebody as esteemed as Ryan with us here today. He is a bit of a nuclear physicist, uh, rocket scientist... In his free time, you know, when he's not making movie-related podcasts, which is his first love, of course. Yes. And, you know, since we have you here, Ryan, uh, I actually – just just so you know, I did – you know, legal went ahead and reached out to the U.S. government, and we did get clearance to be able to discuss the projects that you're working on. So no need to worry about any of that sort of NDA stuff. All worked out. I appreciate that. With, <laughs> with that said – With that said, yeah. <laughs> with that said, I would love to hear about uh, any of these projects that you have in the works right now. Please tell us and our listeners a little – give us a peek behind the curtain. Listen, man, um, what's old is new again, and I'm just kind of going back to the basics. Russia's got these, you know, hypersonic missiles, and everybody wants these. You know, we're all talking about cutting our budget and scaling things back. Okay. With the military-industrial complex being as expensive as it is, uh, what I've decided to do is wind things back again to flaming bags of poop. Uh, You know, we got all this fecal matter from our pets that we've acquired through the lockdown and pandemic. Uh, why don't we just paper bag these things, light them on fire, and then put them on the doorsteps of our enemy? Ring the doorbell, run away. Uh, you know, lives are saved, but the point is made. We could win wars this way. Interesting. What are your thoughts? I'll be honest, dude. I really don't know how effective of a strategy that is. I kind of feel like if you throw on a gas mask or uh, even just an N95 respirator, which all of us have very many of from the pandemic days, that that kind of might take care of that yeah but so, you gotta stomp on it to put it out right and now you got poop on your foot weaponized waste oh dude is that like not the best like llc name weaponized waste incorporated yes patent pending y'all patent 
Pending. I hear you writing it down, sir or madam. No, that is ours. Weaponized Waste Incorporated. We will lay Boom. waste to our enemies. Absolutely. Hey, wonderful. It writes itself, man. It is. Poop in a bag. Fantastic. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everybody. <laughs> this, is, this is the kind of show this is. I'll tell you what. In the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and get my stuff together. While I do that real quick, why don't you give our listeners a description of today's film? Today's film is the 1985 classic Reanimator. Oh, man, I had so much fun watching this for so many reasons. This was such a great palate cleanser from the last few weeks of all these um, art house films and classic vintage prestige movies. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're going to get into this based on H.B. Lovecraft's pulp series. After an odd new medical student arrives on campus, a dedicated local and his girlfriend become involved in bizarre experiments centering around the reanimation of dead tissue. Yeah, a lot of fun on this one. Uh, directed by Stuart Gordon on a budget of 900000 This brought in a box office of $2 million. So yeah, Jason, what did you think about this movie? Ryan, I will be happy to tell you right after we listen to this trailer for Reanimator. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such dribble? These people are here to learn and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the six to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. But lately, they're getting out of hands. And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? You? 15 cc's of reagent being once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Herbert, you're insane! Now what happened? I had to kill him! He's dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life and not one of them showed any appreciation. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head get a job in a sideshow? scare you to pieces. All right, buddy. So I loved this film. It, I really enjoyed it now, but I am going to do a quick caveat and I'm going to say that I didn't love this film as much as I have in the past, which is kind of funny. I think it's just a little bit maybe growing up. Maybe it's a little bit of type of films that we look on this podcast, but you know, when I was in my early 20s, this was like a five-star-plus pinnacle of cinema type of movie for me, and I I adored it. I've seen this many, many times, you know, a dozen times, whatever. Okay. And this time it was still very good. I, I really enjoyed it, but it was just a very light film, right? Sure. It was, like a, it was like an appetizer or something, you know? It was. 
when we've looked at films like La Ventura, where we could spend four hours plus analyzing all of the different creative decisions and character decisions and how it impacted cinema at the time, right? Like, and then we come to something like this. It's great. It's cool. Like you said, it's a great palate cleanser, but it is just that. It's the, I wouldn't say it's the entree, right? Again, it's the palate cleanser. Right. So, which is great. Every time you need, you know, you need a little ginger before you move on to an entirely different type of sushi. <laughs> yep. And this is that. This is that piece of ginger, and it's great and it's refreshing. It's just again, it's more of a. It's more of a. It's it's sating me until the next entree. Yeah, this is how I felt about it. This is kind of the the challenge of this show, right? Is to like change lenses. Genre to genre, film to film, you know, how do you go from Robocop to Amadeus, you know, Elephant Man and Old Boy and Amores Peros to Reanimator and look at it. Yeah, or Monster Squad. Or Monster Squad, right. And look at it in a similar way or dissect it and and take it seriously. And I'll tell you, uh, this made me kind of do some soul searching because it was not long ago that you gave me a big old pile of crap for not appreciating Dagon as much as I, as you did. And, um, (laughs) honestly I do a true, like looking back at it now that we're, you know, wrapping up season three here, uh, we've been doing this a hot minute. Uh, you know, that, that I think had a lot to play with that. Like if I were to go watch Dagon on an average Tuesday afternoon, uh, you know, and, and go try to do a matinee with it. I think I would have appreciated a lot more, but when you're putting it back to back with some of these other, you know, prestige films, um, I forget if it was like Murder of a Chinese Bookie or or one of those. It was like one of those movies that we were back when we used to do two films per episode. God bless the uh, the listeners that endured those three hour long monsters. <laughs> but uh, I want to say it was Bowfinger, if I remember. I think it's oh, Dagon okay. Bowfinger. Got it. Well, regardless, <laughs> which is one of the rare uh, A plus five star films from old Jason and Ryan. Okay, that we agreed on God, at least until recently. Movie. Just yeah. because we've been looking at bangers, but yeah. But anyway, sorry. Continue. My point remains that this is just you know it, it is a palate cleanser, but there's a whole subgenre of films. Like there are entire podcasts dedicated to movies like this, dissecting them, appreciating sure. them. And really good that. ones, man. Correct. We've had some of those people on our show. They're we friends. Totally have. They're great. Yeah. Shout out to the Bloody Bits friends. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, man, this was just a uh, a tough one to go from these A plus because, dude. I mean, what what am I on? Like movie number three now or four A plus in a row? Dude, yeah, you had you had three A pluses in a row, and then an, a solid A that preceded that. Yeah, bananas. That's a tear, dude. Yeah. We've been on a tear, and so Indeed. to to go to a film like this, it's an adjustment. It's like walking out from your. Uh, from your house into the bright sun. It's like, ah, you know, <laughs> and my eyes needed to adjust <laughs> to this movie a little bit. But when I settled in, um, for starters, it's not a long film. It's barely an hour and a half. Correct. Though I do understand it started out as like a two and a half hour, three hour monster they had to cut it down from. But uh, <laughs> yeah, right. But I, th- I do think there's enough meat on the bone here. Um, this is one of the the higher end of the lower tier horror movies, <laughs> if you want to call it that. <laughs> So. <laughs> I like that. That's a great description. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like when yeah. you find a Tommy Hilfiger shirt in Marshalls or Ross, you know, it's like, <laughs> do I want it? Uh, it's like the best thing they got here, you know, and it's 10 bucks. So let's go. So anyway. Yeah. This is, this is Nordstrom rack material, but I'm in Ross. Wow. <laughs> I can't turn I this down. Off. Yeah. They've already cut the <laughs> sleeves off for me. I'm ready to go to the Toby Keith concert. Let's go. <laughs> Whoopity ding dang do. All right, Jason. I think we need to Fantastic. dive into this. We got uh, we got some things to talk about. I can't wait to hear your opinion scene by scene. 
Absolutely. Man. I'm just going to tell you every week, man. Let's go ahead and dive on in, and you can start at the beginning. Wow. I've never considered starting at the beginning. That's an excellent place to start. Yeah. All right. I'll try that this time. So when we start our film at the very beginning, we open on a wide shot, uh, arguable. I wouldn't really call it a uh, Dutch angle. It's more of just a low angle. And it's the University Zurich Institute for Medicine with a Z. <laughs> I don't know why I say that with a French accent, because it is clearly supposed to be German. However, this is what I have gone with. So Institute for Medicine. And it's actually a hospital in Pacoima. Shout out to Pacoima, which is just three miles away from my house. Oh, shit. And is most famous for being the place that Danny Trejo grew up in. So, yeah, if you're wondering what kind of place Pacoima is, it's the type of place where a Danny Trejo would come up from. And this was actually a hospital that was damaged in the Northridge earthquake, a very famous earthquake out here that took down a lot of infrastructure and buildings. If you don't know about it, look it up. Happened in the early 90s. And we see that we're approaching sunrise or sunset, perhaps, and a doctor arrives in the ward. Now, the nurse is acting nervously, pacing around. We hear a patient screaming. This patient is locked in a room. They're, we hear these crashing sounds, and, and they can't open it. It's locked the door, so they end up breaking it down. This is our introduction to Dr. Herbert West, arguably protagonist. I would, I would argue that he's not the protagonist of this film, but he's at least the most famous uh, character from the film. Now, he's hunched over a convulsing doctor. He's got a glowing syringe. In his hand, love that glowing effect. And the body of the convulsing doctor on the floor shoots upright. We very quickly see that it's kind of zombified, if you will. And in a great bit of prosthetic makeup, the eyes bulge. They start to gush blood. And then he sort of falls to the ground. The authorities apprehend Dr. West, say that he killed this man. Dr. West insists, no, I did not. I gave him life. And we cut to credits. That is the intro to our film Reanimator. Now, this is a great opening. It does establish itself as a it horror is. film. Also Waste no worth time. noting, absolutely. And also worth noting that this actually was not in the final shooting script. So they originally wrote this prologue into the original script. And then as they were going to prepare the final draft. They actually decided, nah, you know what? A prologue's cheap. We don't need a prologue. Let's just, you know, start the story proper. And then as they cut it together, they realized that it really took a little while to get to the horror stuff. They wanted to more clearly establish to the audience from the onset that this was a horror film that people were in store for. So they said, hey, let's go ahead and let's film this scene to sort of tee that up. So I think that was what a good I would idea. like to ask. Absolutely. I agree. Now, what I would like to ask you, Ryan, specifically to kick things off here is that in addition to establishing itself as a horror film, this film establishes itself as a specific type of horror film. And that is a very campy one. It is. And even leans into its sort of uh, some comedic elements by the end of it. Now, what I wanted to ask you is, did you appreciate that film? Yeah. What do you sort of feel about camp? And... If if it, whether you did or didn't, what do you what are the elements of the film that you feel are most responsible for setting that campy tone? Well, for starters, the I mean, a lot of my notes are going to get discussed right up front here then, because uh, I have a lot to say, sure. you know, about this topic. I think it's actually kind of the the seminal piece of what 
this movie, like what stood out about this movie to me. And that is that. Sure. Uh, well, a couple things. For starters, it's all practical effects. There are zero post-production effects uh, done in this film, uh, to my knowledge. Not a one. So No opticals, as they called them at the time. Right. So I think that, you know, gives a certain, that lends a certain authenticity to the kind of film that you're about to watch, especially in this day and age when we're used to, you know, a lot of these things being trumped up in post. So, uh, you know, the fact that... You know, you're doing a low budget horror for under a million dollars and you're doing all on set practical effects um, is a couple things about that. For starters, you know, something that gets kind of lost in the discussion, I think, is that for each one of these films, whether it's a Roger Corman film or a Stuart Gordon film or any of the Nightmare on Elm Street or any of that stuff like this is all made by hand per film, per need. Everything is done custom. So, you know, uh, that's that's interesting to me that that, you know, if you want to make eyes sure. bulge out, you have to find out a way to do that. Uh, we talked about this yeah. uh, for Videodrome when we watch Videodrome and the uh, how they were able to get the TV to expand um, when the face was coming out and all of that. When uh, uh, J- sure. James Woods was watching the television and they ended up using like a dental dam material Um that uh, was it. Yeah. It was Rick Baker, I think, that came up with that. And like, uh, they Correct. used a dental dam, um, you know, for uh, contraceptive, uh, like a contraceptive for oral sex, uh, to make that effect. And so, all that to say, like, the creativity that goes into this. This isn't just like, oh yeah, I've got this roll of this, and I'm going to get this tube of that. Uh, so much of this was homemade, and um, and and they're figuring it out on the spot. Like, okay, this is the problem. This is what we need to create. How do we do it? We've got, you know, yeah. 200 bucks and we got to do it in five hours or whatever it is. You know, um, how do we make this happen? And uh, so much of this was done because of all the blood and gore and and uh, and the low budget. And, you know, they shot this in 18 days. I think that includes the reshoot that you're talking about up front. So, um, you know, they, they were on a, a time schedule. They They would only do one take for most of these things because it took too long to reset the room, clean up all the blood, get everybody new wardrobe and go back and do another take. So, so much yeah. pressure was done on the visual effects um, to get it right the first time. And I think it works like for what it is. Yes, it's campy. Yes, it's schlocky, um, but it's fun. And it, it, you know, absolutely in the in the same way, like. You know, I'm not going to put this film in this category because you and I have gushed about it and we hold this film to high regard. But it does kind of fall under the same tier of like an evil debt Um, or like, you know, uh, American Werewolf in Paris or The Howling or, you know, one of those type movies. But this one, uh, Evil Dead more so because of the comedy and and some of the schlockiness and stuff like that. Um, I do believe that Evil Dead is. To me, like you know, the, the the best version of this kind of thing, but you know, yeah, you can the see pinnacle of this type of yeah, but you could see what film. they were going for, and I think you know, yeah, 100%. it's a lot of fun. It's a kind of movie that you would watch uh, as a kid in the basement with a bunch of your friends and stuff. It, there's a lot of nostalgia tied up with this because of the practical effects and stuff. It, it takes you back. It harkens back to an earlier time of cinema. Anyway. Yeah. So I think for me, there's sort of three kind of buckets that we can distill this into. And and of course, if you want to add more later, but, you know, we'll get to these sort of buckets here coming up. And I would say that it's sort of, you know, hinges on these three aspects. The first would be the direction and production of 
Stuart Gordon and Brian Usna, who I believe work very well in concert with, with one another. And then that would be them also working in concert with the special effects team and supervisors. So I think that's kind of like the first bucket. We've got a second bucket, which I believe is the actors, all of the acting, you know, just collectively the entire sure. ensemble. You know, we'll get into that as well. And then I think third, you've got the score from Richard Band, the composer that really does a lot of work. And he was quite insistent about some elements. And, you know, so I think that we'll kind of explore those kind of three elements over the course of this discussion. And, of course, some other ones that will come about. Now, before we actually get into the film proper, I do just kind of want to set up a little bit of where Stuart Gordon and the team was at when this film was made. So this was obviously his very first film. Hadn't made anything before. Prior to this film, he was running the Organic Theater in Chicago with his wife, Carolyn, who actually plays the lead doctor in the film, the one that kind of chastises Dan and has a couple scenes there. And he wanted to break into film. He had a now a funny thing, too, worth mentioning. The Organic Theater was actually known for having a lot of talent come through, not the least of which was Dennis Franz of NYPD Blue fame and Joe Montaigne who is obviously all oh, over nice. the place, but I know and we know best is Fat Tony. Hey, hey. love Fat Tony from The <laughs> Simpsons, of course. Now, he had a friend, Bob Greenberg, that said they should do horror because it was the best way to break into film because as long as you could produce a film for under a million dollars, it would make money and be profitable. That was this guy, Bob Greenberg's position. So Stuart Gordon decided that he was going to go ahead and explore this, and a friend of his actually suggested – a H.P. Lovecraft property called Herber West Reanimator. Now, the funny thing about this is this was actually a six-part comic anthology, and a lot of people don't know this. It was the only thing that H.P. Lovecraft ever had published before the time of his death. Really? Every single H.P. Lovecraft and the dozens and dozens of works that we have read, none of those were purchased by any publisher or distributor. And those were actually all self-published by the estate of H.P. Lovecraft, basically his family that inherited. And they were, you know, they were cleaning out his house one day and they went up to the to the attic and they were like, wow, this guy has literally dozens of books here just sitting there. And so they decided to publish them. And then he became famous well after his death. So I did not yeah, know that kind of in a. In an Edgar Allan Poe sort of way, same thing, died broken, penniless, didn't have a needle in his arm like Edgar Allan, but might as well have, really. Yeah, he was uh, he was active in the 20s, is that correct, H.P. Lovecraft? I believe so, yeah, yeah. Was like late 1800s through early 1900s. Right, okay, just to kind of give a date, yeah. you know, put a stamp on this as far as when we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And so because it was so long ago, there were actually no copies of this Herbert West Reanimator series that Stuart Gordon could find. It turned out that the only available copy was in the Chicago Public Library. How fortuitous for him. I saw that. In Chicago, right? Yeah. It, it, it reminded <laughs> so, me of like when I was trying to watch Old Boy. Like, you should watch Old Boy. And then it's like, <laughs> the only copy left. <laughs> Yeah, You know, and, and people, you know, the kids these days, blah, blah, blah. but like it's hard to appreciate that once upon a time, not that long ago, there was a certain thrill and excitement in the search for some of these very rare films. Yes. Right? Like it wasn't uncommon. It was not uncommon for many films to be like old boy. You know, you couldn't find them at your local video store. Yeah. Streaming wasn't a thing at this point. Right. It was a foreign film that was never even brought over to the States. Right. You know, so. 
you know, it's, it's kind of hard to appreciate that for a long time there was just a certain thrill in finally getting your hands on a copy of Hearts of Darkness yeah. because it didn't exist anywhere. The search for or, physical media, yeah. <laughs> correct, yeah. You know, the long-lost director's cut of Little Shop of Horrors with the alternate ending where they turn into plants and go on a rampage, right. you know, and we get a Looney Tunes ending, you know, that now you just pull up as an, a director's cut on the Blu-ray that's out there. And don't get me wrong, I am not talking shit. Like, thank goodness that we have these things out there because for as thrilling as it was, it was a horrible inconvenience and there was just a ton of stuff that you couldn't check out. And now you can just very easily go and watch these things and that's valuable, but it just doesn't have that same, like, I finally got it. I've spent years hunting it down and it's mine. Right. Right. You you, you know, you kind of miss that aspect of it. So to that point, he had to send in a postcard requesting access to the graphic novels. It was They weren't just available for anybody, and he had to wait like six to eight weeks, right? Please wait six to eight weeks for a response. And the library finally got back to him and said, hey, you know, we're not going to let you check this out, but you can like come down to the library and you can read the copy here. It has to stay here, but we'll let you read it here. And so he did, and he said it was a very, like, ceremonial thing, right? Like, it was, like, you know, coming up from the ground in, like, the glass shell, and, you know, they <laughs> lift, and the smoke disappears, and then, like, it's sitting there, you know? And But he said that the, the graphic novel was so old, and it was in such bad shape, it was so brittle, that as he was turning pages, it was falling apart in his hands and decomposing. And so he asked them if he could actually make Xerox copies of all of them and then take those home and read those. And so that's how he was able to keep the constitution of the comic books in check enough that he could read the source material. And then that's what he worked with. So he had to reanimate the book itself (laughs) (laughs) and give it a second life. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the funny thing from there is he goes on to meet Brian Usna, who was in North Carolina at the time, and Usna really wanted to make a film, and Gordon had a screenplay that he had written before called Lucky, and it was a horror movie about a dog who tries to kill a baby out out of jealousy because the the parents used to spend all their time on the dog, and, and now they're attached to the baby. But as we all know... The two things that you don't write into your screenplay, especially if you're into your first time, are animals and babies because yep. they are impossible to direct. No kids, so, no pets, no water. <laughs> go figure that nobody would finance his film Lucky about the dog trying to kill the baby. So he, you know, Usna said no, but he then asked him if he had anything else. Gordon was like, well, I'm thinking about making this television series, this six-part television series about Herbert West Reanimator. Got this old, you know, property from Lovecraft and Yuzna was into it. So they worked to make six 30 minute episodes with this writer, Bill Norris. So Bill Norris was actually the original writer of Reanimator. But when they couldn't sell the television project, this guy apparently got super discouraged. He was part of the organic theater. And so he pretty much just bowed out. So Gordon had to go find another screenwriter. That's the current one, Dennis Paoli, who gets the credit. And he basically took Bill Norris's source material, which had taken this late 1800s environment and updated it to the modern world. So then Dennis took that idea and then started running with that and adapting it to the old graphic novel. So that's how we get some very old source material updated while still going back to the original source material. And they turned it into ultimately one-hour television shows because apparently no one at the time was interested in financing 30-minute shows. But 
It turned out that they just didn't want to do this program at all. It was a little much. They even tried selling it to like PBS and they were like, dude, well, PBS, you think we're going to make a graphic horror film? Like, it's not what we do, silly man. And so Yuzna was all discouraged because he was trying to break into the industry for the first time. And he was like, you know what? Let's just make it a movie, you know? So he convinced Dennis Paoli to adapt it to a film alongside Gordon and turn it into a film they did. And the funny thing is that the it, on paper, apparently, it reads as a much more straightforward horror film. Mm-hmm. It wasn't supposed to be campy. It was supposed to be more of like a, an old 1950s kind of prestige horror film, Okay, to be completely honest. And apparently, Stuart and Brian kind of fought with people over this because everybody would watch it and be like, dude, this is such a great campy film. And they're like, what do you mean campy? Like, well, yeah, it's kind of silly and over the top. And they're like, no, it's a serious <laughs> horror film. Even down to director or rather composer Richard Band, who like fought with them for months over the direction of the score because he was like, guys, you're not – you don't know what you have on screen. You're looking at the at the page and that's not what's up here, man. Like, sure. You want me to do this big full orchestral sound and like that does not match this at all. I'm not doing that. So <laughs> we'll talk about that all that a little bit later. But it was very interesting. This film, you could tell, had a really – complicated development process and edit went through a number of different edits and direction and this and that pretty amazing that they still got that much footage in 18 days to be completely honest. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's huge that you could film a movie like this in a little over two weeks is bananas with the blood and the creature effects and everything else. I mean, you'd think just at some point you'd have some kind of shooting delay where something didn't work or again, you'd have to reset the room and lose a day. But, yeah, that's huge. Absolutely. So when we get back to the film, we are introduced to who I would argue is our protagonist. That's the young doctor in training, Dan Kane, played by a gentleman, Bruce Abbott. I would agree. Yeah, I think he's kind of, he's sort of supposed to reflect the audience's journey, right? And, and Stuart Gordon actually embraces that. We see that through a number of the sort of over-the-shoulder shots that he'll – do with this Dan character. And again, that's supposed to be sort of like us following Dan as the audience. And he's sort of the only normal male character where everyone else around him is some version of insane. Sure. And then of course we have the female as the voice of reason as well. Yeah. He seems to be going to like mad scientist Academy or something. Cause like everybody (laughs) is all into some weird ass shit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now he's chastised by our lead doctor again, uh, Stuart Gordon's wife. And he takes the body to the morgue where we meet our head doctor, Dr. Hill, played by David Gale in a very gravitas-filled performance. Sure. And he's talking to our school president, Dr. Halsey, played by a gentleman named Robert Sampson. And he introduces Dr. West to Dr. Hill. And Dr. West is very arrogant when he aggressively questions Dr. Hill's theory that the brain can only exist 12 minutes after death, and that's when what they call brain death occurs. This is going to be sort of a theme throughout the film. Now, after that, we're introduced to Megan. This is Dr. Halsey's beautiful daughter, played by Barbara Crampton, great actress. And she's both dating and banging Dan. Good for him. When Dr. West appears to rent the spare room in their bedroom. Uh, now, shortly after this, we get a scene where Dr. Hill performs brain surgery for his students, Dr. West is very disrespectful, breaking pencils, uh, trying to call attention away from the prestige this Dr. Hill enjoys among his students. And I also want to point out uh, that this scene in its original iteration was much longer. And Ryan, this is the type of scene that would sort of make like you and I cringe because, you know, for the same reasons that we don't really like the torture porn and Eli Roth hostile kind of stuff. Okay. Which is that they had this as an entire five minute sequence, like full on five minutes Five solid film minutes of Dr. Hill 
performing this brain autopsy. Yeah, it was just very graphic and it was very close. And so what they realized – and so they actually had that in that original cut of the film because they were like, oh, we're going to gross people out. And what they found out is just that. Yeah, it was grossing people out but not in a fun way. They weren't enjoying themselves. It was just sort of gross and also apparently the way that it was presented was very clinical. Yeah. And so it was almost like watching like five minutes of surgery channel. Correct. And we've talked about that before. You know, like I I enjoy horror that's fun. You know, that's why I can get behind a demon's head being cut off with a ridiculous geyser of blood that's highly stylized. But if you're going to show me a torture scene in, you know, some realistic drama, uh, you know, with George Clooney getting his nails pulled out by uh, pliers, like, no, dude, I can't hang with that. Right. That's too much. Well, there's you know? no stakes because the doctor's just working on a corpse or a cadaver. So if this scene, for example, was happening to one of the characters in our movie, Okay, like now there's stakes. I'm in it with this character. Will he escape? Whatever is happening, or he's just doomed, and you know we have to go along on that ill-fated trip, and we're all gonna cringe. But it, you know they're gonna show it to us. Okay, I can get behind all that. But just to show a surgery to um a dead cadaver that has no impact on the story. There's no stakes. It's right up front in the movie, so we're not like invested in anything that's going on yet because they haven't told us anything other than that opening monologue or prologue uh yeah it's just it's gratuitous at that point and and like you said at that point it's not fun so if you're going to show a grotesque scene like that in its entirety over five minutes um, let it be to dan kane let it be to herbert west let it be to megan you know or any of these other characters but not just to nobody you know and just be this gratuitous brain removal you get the idea for what they show you and it's still with what they left in the movie was still Pretty cringe for what yeah, we it was. still we still get those those graphic brain shots, you yeah. know, of them pulling out the the fake brain and all of that. Mission and accomplished, and we see them cutting open the skull and all of that. So yeah, we definitely get enough of that in those handful of you know seconds as opposed to minutes. But what's important here is you know as we get into this first act is teeing up the dynamic of Doctor Hill and Herbert West really, and showing Dan and Megan's place yes. in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Dan and Megan are back home. They're looking for their cat, and they do find it in Herbert West's fridge. He appears, Dr. West, that is, and he gives a lame excuse about the cat being dead, and he was just trying to preserve it for them or something. And a little bit later, we do hear the cat yowling in the middle of the night. Dan gets up. He goes into Dr. West's room to find that he's being attacked by the cat. The cat is like rabid and crazy all over the place. He ends up chucking it at the wall, kills it. And Dr. West informs that he has – I know it's so funny the way that he just chucks that thing at the wall yeah. and it leaves the splatter. Yeah. It's, uh, and this is, this is going back to – This is know, when the, the cat's on his of, back, right, and like attacking him and all of that? It's right before that, yeah. Okay. So it, well, oh, yeah, well, yeah, the cat is on his back, exactly. He's on Dr. West's back. That's what I mean. he chucks it. Right. And then in the Dan next walks scene, into the cat this is happening. Because what, 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 what you yeah. haven't really mentioned is uh, Herbert West has imposed himself as a new student – um, uh, to move in with Dan. And so now he's living in Dan's Correct, basement, yes. more or less, and performing these experiments down there. Dan now finds his cat dead in a fridge, and now the cat, when he got, wakes up in the middle of the night, the cat is now reanimated, quote-unquote, on uh, Herbert West back attacking him, and it's hilarious. I love this scene yes. so much. It's one of my favorite <laughs> scenes in the movie. 
This is one of those low budget scenes where, you know, they didn't have money for the effects or anything. So it's like, hey, we just need you guys to act, right? You know, right. here's a here's a stuffed cat, you know, pretend you're being attacked by it. Oh, sir. And then, you know, take it and chuck. I'm here to and tell boy, you, does he. it's my understanding that was not a stuffed cat. That was a real dead cat in that fridge. Uh, so much so that when you pull up featurettes on YouTube, they censor it out. Um, big for trigger oh, warning. Wow. So, uh, that was a real dead cat that they brought in, uh, and uh, not the one that they reanimate that on the table and stuff. Yeah, that they that's shoot obviously the, correct. That's all puppetry and all of that. But uh, but the one in the fridge and the one attacking him and all of that. That was a real dead cat that they brought in. Uh, they didn't know any other way to do it, and they're like, "Fuck it." <laughs> so, total <laughs> Roger Corman style DIY shit going on in this movie. Yeah, and we do get that scene where they do reanimate the dead cat, even though it's like in two pieces and yes. has this horribly broken back in that. So <laughs> and we hear it meowing and it does come back to life. And that's basically what convinces Dan to go ahead and join forces with Dr. West because he does see the evidence firsthand. He's proven he could cheat death. Yes. And Dan thinks he's onto yeah. something here. Now, since we're going ahead and talking about this, you know, wonderful physical acting from Jeffrey Combs, let's go ahead and mention that second point, that sort of second bucket of success, or at least what makes this film what it is, which is the acting from the entire ensemble. So, you know, what do you think, Ryan, I would say, of just, you know, the ensemble performances, either collectively as a whole, or were there people that specifically stood out to you as better than some of the others? So... How did you respond to the acting? Uh, a couple things. Um, Robert Sampson as Dean Halsey, the dean of the school, uh, medical facility or whatever, um, gave me big Dean Warmer vibes from Animal House. I thought that it was a direct lift. I just wanted to throw that out there. I know it's random. Yeah, no, but I could definitely see that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That was, uh, uh, I was I like, think- he's just doing like, okay, this is what deans of schools are like, so I'm going to play this that way. Um David Gale crushes it. I think he steals the show. Sure. Um, I know Jeffrey Combs gets a lot of credit. Well-deserved. Um, his voice inflection, his monotone delivery, the way he uh, can keep a straight face in a lot of these scenarios. I mean, it's just it's so much over-the-top shit is going on, but he stays in character the entire time and and uh, remains consistent. But David Gale, for me, was was it. I think he makes this movie um, he gets the most, I think, to work with as well. He's got the coolest part, uh, as we will kick, you know, get to shortly. Um, uh, this is a very short film, so you know we'll get there soon. Barbara Crampton is a national treasure. I don't know much. I don't know yeah, how much great. you dove into her uh, library or whatever. I know you've seen. Uh, what was uh, Stewie G's follow up to this film that she was in? Um, From Beyond. Thank you. Yeah, I have not seen that. Um, but in doing some digging about her, I found out she was in that as well. And, uh, yeah, so she's regarded as a bit of a scream queen, uh, for these low budget films. Um, she was even in Adam Wingard's year next. She's still working to this day. She's directed, she's produced, um, she's all over the place. And I got to watch a tremendous interview, uh, with her, um, on the Joe Blow YouTube channel and um, she's just nice. amazing dude she's so professional yeah, she's great for you know being schlocky and in all these you know scream queen low budget horror films her entire career you would expect there to be a little more man I, I don't even want to put it this way but just a, uh, I didn't expect her air of professionalism like how much thought and intuition she puts into all these roles how seriously she takes it how appreciative she is for all the opportunities she's been she's been given and if all that wasn't enough, to this very day, um, present day, she's still a super mega babe. 
So gotta appreciate Barbara Crampton, dude. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Can't speak highly yeah. enough about no, you, her you and David Gale's performances. I think they really stole the show for me. Yeah, definitely. No, you put it perfectly. One of the interesting thing to note is that Barbara Crampton, for all of her greatness, was not the first choice for this film. They actually had another actress that was all signed up, and it turned out that three weeks before they were start set to start shooting, the actress gave the script to her mother. Oh, wow. And so it turned out that very shortly thereafter, once mom got to act three, she was like, nope, you're not doing That's this. That's a hard no. Yeah. And so she had to bow Couldn't out. Couldn't imagine why. Yeah. So they, they scrambled. They ended up getting a hold of Barbara. She said yes, was brought in. And that was much to everybody's benefit, including ours. As you said, she is fantastic in this film, brings a lot of heart, brings solid performance, and yes, it's just a lovely, a lovely woman for sure. And uh, so, I'm sure you saw this, but David Gale actually got a divorce because of Act Three. We'll get to that shortly too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and he was actually being teed up to be something of the next Vincent Price at the time. He was doing a lot of the low budget Hammer horror films. Big Vincent Price vibes. Yeah, big Vincent Price vibes from him on this. Movie. Yeah, and I, I honestly didn't managed to look up the circumstances surrounding his death. But unfortunately it does appear that about five years after this film wrapped, he did pass away. And so he never really got that opportunity to become that guy. Now, one of the other interesting things to note is one of the zombies you'll probably recognize is a little more jacked than the rest of them. I believe he's one of the first zombies to pop up. And that's a gentleman by the name of Peter Kent, who is best known as Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how he made his cheese for a long time. And as a result of this, it led to Arnold Schwarzenegger coming to the screening no shit. of the film. Yeah, so one of the first screenings he showed up to. And it turned out that uh, Arnold you know, kind of likes schlocky films like this. Go figure, right? And yeah, so he loved this film. He always, and, be, and because of that, he had a very high opinion of Stuart Gordon to the point that when he was in talks to make a film called Fortress, he recommended Stuart Gordon. Now, it would turn out that, you know, when all is said and done, Arnold Schwarzenegger would drop out of that film, but Stuart Gordon got to hang around. So Arnold Schwarzenegger is the entire reason that Stuart Gordon got the Fortress gig because his stunt double was in Reanimator 10 years prior and he really enjoyed the film. Interesting. And would later go on to be cast by uh, Christopher Lambert and our boy Kurtwood Smith, the great Kurtwood Smith from RoboCop and That 70s Show. Hell Yeah. Now, when we get back to the film, we've got Dan. He's telling Professor Halsey about West conquering brain death. And Halsey then responds by expelling West and suspending Dan's student loan. Because, again, that's exactly how the dean in all of these films goes. Ha! Ah, you said something I don't like. I'm taking away your loan. Get the hell out of my school, right? <laughs> and so the two of them are like, well, screw this guy. We're going to go ahead and break into his morgue and just use these facilities for as long as we can until they kick us out. And that's when they decide to test this serum on a body. I do believe, again, that's the uh, Peter Kent uh, character is the first one that they tested on. It doesn't really work until it does where the body shoots up. It's alive, but it's all crazy and rabid. It attacks Dan and Dr. West, and then it breaks the door down and it kills President Halsey, at which point we set up the awesome scene where Dr. Herbert West gets the reveal of the bone saw and slowly approaches, manages to get behind the zombie and then just push that bone saw right through his chest. So good. And 
so good. You know, we can obviously tell that it's a fake body that's there when they do sort of cut back to the actual coming through the torso. What may not be as apparent is that behind that body, you have two technicians who are pushing hamburger and fake blood through the hole. That's the, the stuff sweet, that's coming sweet out sweet practical it. effects I was talking about. Yeah, <laughs> loved it. Yes. And so because of this negative response from the body, the two of them conclude that they need a fresher body, though it's probably Dr. West's insistence. And so, hey, got a fresh body right here in this Halsey character. Let's go ahead and use the serum on him. Didn't work on the last guy, but I'm sure it's going to work on this guy. Takes 17 seconds to reanimate. And it turns out that he's not maybe as crazy and violent as the previous one, but he is definitely not himself. To the point that the security guard and Megan, his daughter, run in, see him acting all crazy and think that he has just sort of lost his mind when we know that he has really died and been violently reanimated. Now, Ryan, earlier I mentioned the sort of third bucket of success of this film, if you will, is the score performed by a gentleman named Richard Band. I did not happen to look up if that is a gentleman related to one of our producers, Charles Band. Perhaps you you know, perhaps you don't. But I do not. What do you think overall of – okay, great. Cool. We'll move on. Listener, if you know. Listener, if you know, call the hotline. 818-483-6285. Let us know who that was. We'll get you live on the air. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what? So I'll ask you, Ryan. The, what did you think of the score by Richard Band? Loved and, it. And, and how much do you believe that it sort of factored into the overall feel of this film? Loved it. Yeah, I'm really glad that you did uh, some deep diving on this guy and kind of found out a little more about him because I did not. But I, that was something that really stood out to me was, I mean, because that's what's building the suspense and cutting through some of the schlock and all of that was the high tension of the score and music. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's also really interesting because one of the things that we'll note is that it's primarily an orchestral score. Though it has been imbued with certain what would be considered modern at the time, basically just synth drum beats, right? And maybe some synth notes, just incorporating a synthesizer into a traditional orchestral score. Now, what's funny about this is, as I mentioned earlier, Stuart Gordon and Brian Usna thought that they had a very serious traditional 50s inspired horror film on their hands. And so everyone they showed it to kind of insisted that, well, no, you know, you kind of have a campy. B-ish movie. By the way, can I just – I really want to touch on this real quick, right? B-movie, the origin of B-movie. Do you know the exact origin of that term B-movie, Ryan? I do not. Enlighten me. Okay, so – yeah, so everybody thinks that it's basically just like a ranking system, right? Sure. Oh, you know, it's a it's, it's also a lesser film. It's cheaper, et cetera, et cetera, right? It is that, but that's not why it's called a B-film. Why it's called a B-film is because these cheap exploitation films were largely exhibited at drive-in theaters back in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, drive-ins are always a double feature. And so when we talk about the B-movie – The B-movie is the second movie on the marquee. It's like the bonus film that you get. So so when they they schedule these double features, it's always like the newest film, right, or, you know, the big film that just came out. And then we're going to go with something that's cheaper to license as that bonus second film or B-film. So that's where the term B-movie came from. It was the second film uh, traditionally featured in drive-in exhibitions. Interesting. 
Yeah, so this was not quite a B film in that it was intended to be a major release, but it definitely did borrow from a lot of the aesthetics and tropes of B-movie films, namely that of blood and boobs, right? And then some. Those are two of my favorite things. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it was a contentious development, as I said, with the score because Richard Band would not back down. He was like, guys, you do not have a prestige horror film. No offense. And and he even said he's like he, he believes that they were looking at the source material and looking at what they had on a page and not really paying attention to the dailies and the film that was born out of that. You know, they went in trying to make one film, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they came out making that film, right? That happens sometimes. And so instead of sort of embracing the more sort of cheesy, campy B-movie elements of the film, Gordon and Yuzna kept trying to find ways to elevate it. And so they approached him about doing a very full orchestral score And he was like, guys, you've got like two or three people on screen at all times. You've got a giant hospital with four people in it, you know, to to do a full orchestration would work against what you have on screen. It would juxtapose that. And you've told me that you don't want that. We want something that's going to underscore and 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 bring out the elements of the film. He's like, I want to I want to do something a a little bit campier, maybe even throw in some to the point of throwing in comedic beats. He's like, and and also I want to do this thing, which I'm sure it jumped out to you. He's like, I really want to set this up as a horror film. So what I'd like to do is heavily borrow elements from Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho. Did, did you happen to think about that as you heard that initial score, Ryan? I n- didn't think about it when I was watching the movie, but I did see it come up in a interview with Stuart Gordon uh, that I watched on the YouTubes and doing research for this. Yeah, so the funny thing about Band is, again, so he keeps trying to convince them. He's working on it. They don't really like his direction, but he's not backing down. He's insistent that it's a campy film. And so one of the interesting things, by the way, the physical DVD, the Blu-ray, it's not even the expensive one from Arrow. It's like the, the traditional one from Anchor Bay. I think you can get it for 10 bucks, 12 bucks. And it has some really, really great special features. One of them is a featurette with the composer who actually goes on to talk about what his inspirations were for score. And Ryan, this is something I've mentioned to you before where, you know, I, I speak film all day long. The only thing that I don't really speak of about a film with regards to the level that I would like to be able to is music. Because when we talk about the score, we're really, we're really speaking in musical terms. And I just don't understand music well enough to be able to speak to it the way that I do film. Right. So anytime that I have somebody who is willing, who understands music and can speak to it to me the way that I can talk to them about film and story and all of these aspects, I find that fascinating. And so I was really interested by what this guy had to say, because first of all, he took it way more seriously than I ever thought he would. Right. I don't always appreciate that composers are heavily inspired by the film, you know, and they, and they really try to get into the essence of what the film is about and, and how they can really bring more of that out. And so, again, that's why he wanted to do really small orchestrations because he ultimately knew this was a small film and that audiences would respond the wrong way if they were to go with a full orchestration. You know, instead of trying to pretend we're something we're not, let's just lean into what we are and sort of do that. And so because – so after they got the first – 
iteration done and Yuzna and Gordon knew that they needed that prologue because it didn't establish itself as a horror film right up front. That's where band comes in and says, Hey, what's the most recognizable horror theme of all time? The answer is psycho, right? Don't care what you say. The answer is psycho. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a theme that sounds so much like psycho that it's unmistakable It'll be a sort of wink and nod to this guy, Bernard Herman, who we all very much respect, right? He changed the game with regards to music composing. And because it's so recognizable, audiences are going to hear that song, hear, hear the score, associate it with Psycho, and then associate it with horror. That way, very, very early on, the audience knows that they're in for a horror film, right? And that's why he went with such a psycho-influenced theme, not realizing that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily get the joke or the reference and thought he was just wholesale plagiarizing. And so a lot of people came after him, including the Bernard Herman Society. Oh, shit. Which is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's like the, the ultimate fan club for this guy. <laughs> and this would be, you know, he's like the equivalent of like a Sondheim or like a... You know what? Basically, one of these like uh, unassailable geniuses that advanced the medium forward, right? Like that's that's the breath that this guy is spoken about in. So to you know, openly steal from him would be openly stealing from Mozart or Spielberg or anybody who's considered to be the utmost at the top of their game, right? So he got like just hammered, and he was kind of confused because he was like, "I assumed this was so obvious that everyone would know that it was a reference, but." Well, here we are, right? Shame on me for figuring that. But yeah, so it, it definitely goes a long way. And like I said, he made sure to use small string orchestrations to really underscore the small sense of scale in the film, knowing that the large swelling score that Yuzna and Gordon were insisting on would feel out of place. Love all and that. And I think it ultimately worked for the film. Yeah, I do too. Uh, the score really stood out for me. I just didn't get the behind the scenes stuff. So that's really informative. I'll also add really quickly, I did look it up. Uh, and he is in fact the brother of Charles Band. Uh, and they're both the sons of, uh, of director, producer Albert Band. And he's the uncle yeah. of musician Alex Band, who's the lead singer of the rock group The Calling. So big band family. Nice. Yeah. And one thing I will say about Albert Band, too, since it was brought up is so David Gale, the Dr. Hill character, had an entire subplot that was removed. And that subplot was basically that he was working on developing hypnosis right the ability to just look at people and convince them to do his bidding right so when they had that first super long cut and it didn't work as well it was actually albert band the father that you just spoke of who approached Stuart gordon and said hey you know one of the things about this film is there's just there's too much weird shit going on right hard it's not that weird stuff is happening it's that there's so many different plot lines and it's all trying to like out weird the next and so it's just too much He's like, you know, you should recut the film and the only weird thing should be the serum. You know, get rid of the hypnosis, get rid of the this, just focus in on the serum and then every everybody else should be grounded in reality, right? Yeah. Let's 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 create the reality of this world so it doesn't feel like some weird fever dream that exists in a hyper reality. And so it was that suggestion that ultimately led to them rethinking the direction of the overall story. So thanks, Mr. Uh, Mr. Band the Senior. We appreciate your, uh, your advice. But when you watch this movie under that context, it does make sense that Dr. Like, because that was something that I was always kind of wondering is like why Dr. Hill was able to, like people just kind of went along with what he was doing. He was kind of puppet mastering yeah. the scenario, some of these scenarios. And uh, the answer is that he was in the original text, 
some kind of master of mind control and hypnosis. And so, uh, though they did remove it, when you know that in the back of your head as like a subtext character thing, uh, profile, if you will. Yeah. Some of these things do kind of make sense when you watch it that way. Absolutely. And you do see a, you see a lot of remnants and echoes throughout this film of aspects that they were trying to go for before. Sure. And ultimately they just found out that they didn't work and they were willing to, even though they were resistant to a lot of cuts at the end of the day, they did have enough people saying, Hey, you've got a good film here, but you really got to distill it down to these bare elements. And so from the sounds of it, there were dozens of different cuts that ended up being exhibited to different people until they finally settled into the one that we have today. Now, when we get back to the film, we have Dr. Hill. He confronts West and he threatens him. He wants to steal his serum and formula and take credit for his discovery. He realizes that this is, in fact, true and real. And as he is looking through a microscope, seeing the evidence firsthand, Dr. West grabs a shovel gets behind him and smashes his head in with that shovel after which point he uses it to decapitate dr hill and ends up uh, putting the head on a spike and uses the serum on the severed head which can we just also you know give a, a moment of acknowledgement to dr west for continually doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on the effectiveness of the serum that just constantly <laughs> proves to do nothing but destroy everything it comes into contact with. Yeah, right. It's like, he's like, oh man, that serum fucked us. Oh, I know what'll help us out. More serum. More serum. Right? Get the serum. The serum will get him out, get us out of this sticky situation. Like, right. If you had told me that Stuart Gordon and Brian Usna had designed this entire script to be a metaphor for drug addiction and like cocaine <laughs> addiction. Oh man, my life is shit because I'm addicted to blow. You know what would help this out? More blow. Yeah. Let's I, go. I gotta Let's clear go my head up so I can figure out how to get over this cocaine addiction. <laughs> oh man, a couple bumps would help me clear my head up right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, that's exactly how I feel about West with this serum. It's just like no matter how deep a hole he digs with this serum, he's always like, more serum is the answer. So much so, by the way, that we've got, I think, two or three sequels to this film where they uh, <laughs> carry on this road as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which producer Brian Usna, I know at least directed the second one, if not the third. Okay. Yeah. He, his first film is a, a film called Society, which we actually have on our list. And, and God's willing, we get that someday because that is the most insane third act. <laughs> literally, absolute most insane third act of any film I can think of. Like, it, literally, if you were to ask me, like, for a formal list, what film has the most insane third act you've ever seen? I would say Society. Society. 100%. Okay. Noted. Yeah. I will so say that, that uh, in the sequel to this film, Bride of Reanimator, uh, Dr. Carl Hill gets bat wings, I guess, grafted to his head so he can fly <laughs> around. So, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, die. oh, you smell that, Ryan? That is that is the strong smell of a five-minute review making itself known. <laughs> yes, in a very Critters 2 kind of way. I love it. I may have to get in on this. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, after he does inject the serum, the body comes to life, and then it knocks Dr. West unconscious. Then the body goes and gets fresh blood for the head, at which point the head commands a reanimated Dr. Halsey to help him out. We do see that Dan and Megan have this sort of, like, cheesy emotional moment that probably only exists to set up the crashing interruption from zombie Halsey. And speaking of zombies, Ryan, we haven't really gone into too much detail on the, the makeup or special effects, 
when that's really a huge strength of this film. We, we haven't mentioned that at the time of its release, it held a record for the goriest film of all time. I saw that. For using 30 gallons of blood, <laughs> that would be absolutely demolished within five to seven years yeah. by Mr. Peter Jackson. Hold my fosters. Brain dead yeah. slash dead alive. <laughs> yeah. I, li- I, I, th- I think he literally said 3,000 gallons of blood. It would not surprise me because like they were saying that this was a lot of blood. I read that going into this film. I was like, oh, yeah, I I think I do remember this being very gory. And it was a very small amount of blood compared to what we've been subjected to from Dead Alive slash Brain Dead. Yeah. Or or even the Evil Dead remake. Or even, you know, literally raining blood from the sky for like 12 minutes. I very recently watched that for the first time. Thank you, Jason. I love that movie. You are welcome. It was a delight and a treat to be able to sit down in person and, and watch with you in your home theater. We made that happen and it was lovely. But this uh, this Dr. Carl Hill scenario, now that he's headless and his body is working for him as a henchman of sorts, as an animated uh, thing, he's like mind controlling it, you know, c- controlling the thing or whatever. And I just could not help th- but think of the headless body of Spiro Agnew from Futurama uh, carrying around Richard Nixon's <laughs> head. I was like, dude, this is a, a total reanimator thing going on. <laughs> Aroo! <laughs> oh, I love that Richard show Nixon so much. for you all there. Fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait till it comes back on Hulu here this year. It's gonna yeah. be a lot of fun. Now, something Jason, I wanted to bring up very quickly. I think you know, as we're kind of winding yes. this uh, discussion down, I wanted to interject very quickly and kind of remind our audience, and perhaps you as well. You mentioned it very briefly as you were skimming over uh, some of the things about what made this film successful in the top of the show, but I do think it it bears hammering down. Um, what made this film and many, many of this genre, namely the low-budget horror of its day, uh, so successful. And that's the VHS boom of the mid-80s. VHS was named the medium of choice back in uh, the late 70s, early 80s over Betamax. It was a huge thing. JVC had VHS. Sony had Betamax. They were hashing it out over in Japan. VHS won, of course. It was able to hold two hours. Betamax was only able to hold a little over an hour. So that made VHS the better choice for cinematic mediums. So, uh, yeah, you know, I grew up in a smaller town and we had a movie theater that had two screens. And then if you went to a Tascadero, just a little further, uh, into the city of San Luis Obispo in central California, where I grew up, um, I think they had like six screens, but point being, you would never get a movie like this or even a bigger movie like nightmare on Elm street or something like that. They were only showing, you know, the top, cinema you know experiences of the day ghostbusters or i i saw teenage mutant ninja turtles the original movie in the theater all whatever was garnering millions of dollars but never could you see small features like this uh in the in the theater and then along came movie rental stores and it kind of blew the door open and created a lot of opportunities for movies like this that though this movie made two million in the box office and was considered a success Um, you know, it was really the VHS and home video market that, uh, secured movies like this and even evil dead, um, nightmare on Elm street and, and some of those, you know, and and the sequels that would follow into cult hits. Um, that was how that went down and it created a whole new way to experience film, uh, that you could watch it in the basement over a couple pizzas with a bunch of your friends or have the girl you wanted over to watch it on the couch that you had a crush on in high school or whatever it was. So, um, you know, and then that also lent itself to a whole new trend because 
You know, when you go to a movie theater, for example, like I said, in my small town, I had a choice of two, three, four movies, whatever it was. But you go to, into a video rental store back then, and all of a sudden, for the first time ever, you're open to hundreds, if not thousands of videos that you have to choose from. And, you know, and now, of course, we've got streaming and we're just nice. overly spoiled, but... Just sure. trying to go back and remember that feeling of going on a Thursday or Friday night and going to rent a bunch of movies for the weekend. Um, and and then you get into the horror section and that's when you get into box art. And I know Jason and I have talked ad nauseum on this show over the course of three seasons about these box art films. But horror movies Absolutely. were really the ones that took that uh, whole thing over and made it its own. Like... It was almost a competition, so much so that I remember very specifically Reanimator um, having like a neon green box uh, surrounding casing or whatever that matched the serum. Um, anything to make it jump off the shelf and stand out. It was almost like a competition of ridiculousness. Like Ghoulies, they had the little yeah. monster coming out of the toilet. Um, I remember House, you had like the, the Ghoulies. <laughs> Which singer. isn't even in the damn movie, by not the way. Even that in the movie. not in the movie. Right. So much of this stuff it's was ridiculous. that way. Yeah. And then they were saying, you know, sometimes it was like uh, a whisper in a room full of screaming speaks the loudest. And so like the Amityville horror um, was really subdued like that box art. I, I read all these articles. I went down this crazy wormhole the other day about this uh, VHS boom <laughs> because uh, th this movie kind of made me nostalgic for a lot of that. And it, it made me realize like, yeah, you know, uh, because for years, movies like this have existed. Like you were talking about the William Castle movies or Roger Corman films. Um, but if you didn't live in LA, New York, Chicago, or, you know, some of these larger markets, if you were in, you know, middle America somewhere, um, you didn't get exposed to all of that. There wasn't a lot of ways to watch some of that unless you saw a creature feature on television, USA Up All Night, stuff like that. But the video store uh, and the VHS boom in the mid 80s, uh, late 80s, really blew this whole thing wide open and, and gave opportunities to people like Stuart Gordon and created entire careers. Um, like I said, even even Wes Craven, uh, you know, going down that I wouldn't, you know, have ever been able to see Serpent in the Rainbow or Nightmare on Elm Street 4 or any of that stuff. Um, so then I started wondering, okay, so, you know, you've got this whole thing of these schlocky, crazy, low-budget horror films. And what makes, you know, a Nightmare on Elm Street or an Evil Dead uh, stand out above a reanimator? What is it about the, like, is it the cinematography or is it just the fact that those things have... The closest thing I can, and this is a question, I'm going to throw it back to you, but um, sure, yeah. Uh, the only thing I could come up with is that some of these films had more of a definable antagonist, um, i.e., because like the, the David Gale, Dr. Carl Hill character only really becomes the monster at the end of this film. Um, and, and we wrap up the third act with him, but, uh, you know, whereas like, you know, they never really gave us like a Freddy Krueger or something iconic that we could wrap our hand around. But, um, do you think the acting is less? I mean, if you go back and watch some of these original horror films like nightmare on Elm street and stuff like that, it, they're pretty schlocky too. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So a couple things, I think that with regards to this film, I would say that the acting is Probably better than most of your mainstream horror film selections, Night of the Living Deads, Friday the 13th, okay. Razors, etc. Reanimator we're ta you're talking about. Correct, yeah. Okay. Because those films always, almost always, have the same sort of quality, which is that they have a very strong actor as the main baddie, right? Uh, which is, you know, Freddy Krueger. Sure. 
uh, Hellraiser, uh, even even Jason to a degree, right? I forget the people who play these characters, but the protagonists of the film are never those people. Those are the antagonists, and our protagonists are always one to several teenagers, and they're always shitty actors, right? With the exception of Nightmare on Elm Street 3 that happened to get Patricia Arquette and Lawrence Fishburne when they were super young, right? But yeah, Johnny Depp the in part, the first one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so barring, but for the most part, they're pretty, they're pretty forgettable characters. All of these characters are wonderful and all of the actors are wonderful and they're memorable. And Jeffrey Combs is great and Barbara Crampton's great and David Gale is great. So I don't think it's the acting. I think it's really just the, it's a couple things. It's the overall direction. You know, let's, let's remember that by the time a major Hollywood studio brings you in to direct one of their films, you know, you've got some experience under your belt. Even if you're like a new guy, you've probably been doing music videos or commercials. So you kind of know what you're doing. Whereas, you know, this is a gentleman who has literally been directing theater for his entire life. He's never directed a film. He didn't go to film school. Who even knows how many films he watches? Sure. And so I think that there's an element of sort of, you know, being new to this, that sort of gives it a little bit of like maybe a clunkier feel. There's a lot of, you know, 30 degrees rules that are broken and things of that nature. And, you know, I know from doing some research that he didn't really shoot it traditionally in terms of doing masters with coverage and all of that. He did a lot of single takes. Okay. And even even down to the fact that and, – and, and budget is a huge matter of, of how things turn out. So one of the things that we see consistently in this film, and I think it's great and it's very effectively used, is dolly movement. You know, you could tell that dude loved himself some dolly movement so much so actually that it was funny. The lead cinematographer actually for most of the production called Stuart Gordon Orson Rails because of how much he <laughs> loved dollies. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. And the thing is, if you know anything about working with dollies, like you need a lot of rehearsal to really nail those shots and to get them to be really smooth and all of that. And when you've got 18 days to make an entire damn film, that's ultimately going to be two and a half hours on your first cut. You just don't have the time to practice those dolly movements. You don't, you're not paying for people that have done it a ton. So you've got, you know, newer ACs and newer DPs. And so, sure. You know, you're not getting that smooth, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson slow push in, you know, Stanley Kubrick, uh, David Fincher, any of these people with, you know, that are known for having really, really slow, methodical, but brilliantly scripted dolly push ins. It's a lot of rehearsal and right. you just can't pull that off in 18 days and less than a million dollars, you know. So I think it's also just the sort of inherently rushed nature of the production through no fault of anyone else's other than just, hey, you know, we don't have – I can't afford to give you three days to rehearse this, you know, one or right? Like, right. Just do it. If it's shaky, so be it, right? Just get it down. We don't have time. Yeah. So I think that's a large part of it as well. Yeah. I mean – you know, some of this stuff too, we, I guess if you kick the can down the road, um, you know, you get to see, so like Sam Raimi made Evil Dead. Okay. So what makes Evil Dead better than, uh, you know, um, a reanimator, for example? Um, well, Sam Raimi goes on to go do these, you know, huge Hollywood blockbusters and work with the Coens and, you know, all this other cool stuff. Um, but then Stuart Gordon kicked the can down the road, gives us, you know, Dagon and, you know, some of that stuff. So uh, maybe that's just... Uh, the the directors like Wes Craven, for example, or, you know, because he made Nightmare on Elm Street for a million bucks, 
1984, a, few, a couple of years prior to this or a year prior to this. So it all kind of oh, happened wow. around the same budget, around the same time. I will say Wes Craven did make a movie or two before this. I think he did Hills Have Eyes and um, uh, was it Last House, Last on, the House left? on the Left? Yeah. So this was kind of Stuart Gordon's student, student film, if you will. Like this was his first outing. But uh, but he obviously went on to go do the Scream franchise and and, uh, you know, kind of up the stakes a little bit on on larger films as well. So, um, you know, maybe they're just more crafted directors. I don't know. I, I was curious. I just thought I would bring it to your attention talking about the horror box art uh, VHS boom of the 80s. There were a lot of directors that came out of that that went on to do bigger things that are all, you know, very known name, household names like Wes Craven and and Sam Raimi uh, that benefited from that phenomenon. But Stuart. Gordon um, kind of just like stayed in that realm, uh, kind of just Roger Corman did up and knew his knew his lane. I wasn't sure if you had any insight on that. And now a quick word from our sponsor. You were dead, buried and gone and lost to time. Your family mourned, your friends toasted a beer in your honor. Your girlfriend found dick pics on your phone sent to some girl named Christine. And that was that. Until now. Against all odds, you've been brought back. Was it through science? An apocalyptic curse? It doesn't matter. You're a zombie. A goddamn zombie. And today, you'll push yourself to the limit for one goal. To eat the living shit out of anyone in your way. Your friends are slow, but not you. Not today. You've trained to be quick, like one of those 28 Days Later Danny Boyle zombies. Your bones are fragile. Your skin is hanging off. You're wearing one shoe. You no longer have a dick for any more picks. But being a zombie isn't for the weak. It's for the hungry. And with hunger comes thirst. And when that thirst hits, after a long day of eating out of shape customers at the local Walmart, we'll be there to quench it. Introducing Reanimatorade. No vitamins, no electrolytes, no added sugar. Just a gigantic dose of trailer park meth diluted in water to help you stay quicker than your competition to ensure the propagation of your species. One sip will turn your into biting, performance, gurgling noises, reanimatorade. Be the best zombie. You can zombie. And now, back to the show. Yeah, and then we've also got, you know, as far as supervising the visual effects, we've got this guy, Tony Dublin, and he's working with, actually, the producer, Bob Greenberg, as a technician. And, again, part of what makes this whole campy vibe work is a lot of these effects. We've got, you know, the blood and eye gouge effects that are great. We've got a lot of really strong makeup. The attention paid to the zombie bodies and the way that like the blood would pool uh, and, you know, the airbrushing that they did to achieve that. Like Stuart Gordon actually took the entire cast and crew down to a morgue to literally look at like dozens and hundreds of bodies to really understand, you know, what they were working within. And so that the crew could really get the look and feel of the makeup. Right. And one of the other things I love too is, you know, obviously the, one of the images that stays with us from this film is that glowing goo, right? The actual serum. Love right? it. Every time they pull out the bottle, it's just this giant luminescent green. And the funny thing is that, you know, 
that sort of thing could be achieved by a substance that they called luminol uh, that is actually non-toxic. Uh, but they didn't know any better at the time. And so Stuart Gordon was talking about how the only way that they really knew about this sort of like luminescent material was from these flares that would be sold in hardware stores. And they were apparently like very toxic. It was like, do not get this stuff, you know, anywhere. And, you know, but they're filmmakers. What the fuck do they care? So they bought a bunch of these things and they would, you know, it was basically like sort of like a glow stick, right? Like you break it and then, you know, you introduce it to this B formula or to the air and then that that activates the luminescence. But the downside is that this stuff that they were using would only work for about 40 to 45 minutes at a time. So they were constantly, constantly having to like buy more of these flares and break them open and like replace the fluid and whatnot. And the funny thing is, again, despite the fact that it was like supposedly toxic and they were supposed to keep it off their skin, like you just see it splashing all over the place Eesh. everywhere. They really did not pay much attention to that. Yikes. <laughs> did give us uh, one of the coolest last frames uh, in cinema before the, the credits, though. We'll get to that. I love that. That. Yeah. Shot. Definitely. That was a good one. And the other sort of concession that they had to make is that the in the original screenplay that that final third act has like dozens of zombies coming to life and they were all about it until Brian Usna started crunching the numbers and was like, "Oh, we have a problem here." And because the thing is they really wanted to make sure that each zombie was really well done. You know, they didn't want a bunch of disposable zombies. They wanted a bunch of uniquely fully done up zombies and obviously once they started crunching the numbers in time that didn't make sense so Yuzuna was like you can have six you get six zombies for the final sequence so designed with more in mind but at least they all do look very strong the ones that are there and when we get back to the film this is obviously one of the more infamous scenes that it's known for it's our third act where we see Megan she's been kidnapped and this is where she gets stripped down naked and tied to a gurney. We have Dr. Hill, who is sort of moving his head across and down her body. You know, it moves famously all the way down to her crotch. Yikes. And the funny thing about this moment, yeah, a little uncomfortable, of course. You know, we're going back to the 80s and, you know, the calculus was different. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan of this scene personally. It feels pretty porny and exploitative and even if you were going to do this, you know, make this creative decision, there's just a certain way that the camera kind of lingers and, and you know, like how focused on her breast and her exposed vagina and all this stuff that was just like a little bit off-putting. But I understand that's also sort of the point because the one thing that they point out is that, you know, this is their version, the, the, the schlocky B-movie blood and boobs version of the – traditional mustache twirling villain who has kidnapped the girl and tied her to the train tracks and is going to take advantage of her body before she's finally perishes. And so, sure. You know, and then is seemingly in the same way that the, the dashing hero, you know, shows up at the last minute to save her, you know, the, before it actually happens before that, that head actually does go down. It, you, Herbert West shows up and, you know, says his cool one liner, or you know, dismisses the guy with a certain bravado. Right. So yep. I, I do understand that while also recognizing that uh, personally it made me uncomfortable. 
It was supposed to, though. It's cool. Yeah. I was cool with it. It was supposed to. Yeah. (laughs) And I'll tell you what. Barbara Crampton was cool with it. So let's start there. Like, she was totally down to clown. And she said she'd do it again in a heartbeat in an interview uh, if she ever had the chance to. So um, if she was okay with it and didn't feel exploited as an actress or pushed into it, looking back on it with 30 years or 40 years to digest it, okay, great. Um, And it's horror. It's, you know, tits and blood, man. Like, these are exploitation movies of their day. Yeah. They're you know, called they're, exploitation movies because they exploit, right? right. <laughs> it was given, it's my understanding, you could correct me if I'm wrong, you may know more about this, but wasn't this given an unrated uh, rating when it first came out? It was. So there's actually a really interesting story behind that. Cool. I'll just go ahead and th- uh, throw out real quick, which is that, so yes, basically they went to the MPAA to try to get this rated and the MPA just laughed them off. And basically when they crunched the numbers in order to get, an R rating, the final film that they had would have been 42 minutes long, which obviously (laughs) was not long enough to be a feature. Yeah. And so apparently very sort of courageously at the time, Brian Usna was just like, fuck it. We're just going to release it unrated, you know, and and we're going to have all this stuff up against us and, you know, indecency laws and blah, 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 this and that. So, but you know, like, like to, to turn the film into what it's not for the sake of getting the R rating, like, I don't want to do that. You know, everyone loves this film. We, we, we like what we have. We spent years trimming it down into this, you know, 83, 87 minute lean version that finally works after all this time. So no, we're not do that. We're just going to go ahead and release it unrated. And so then, you know, it started playing and it actually took off. And and much to Brian Usna's credit, he was able to use his business savvy to get it exhibited and to turn profits. Well, the distributor down the line was like looking at lamenting all these lost profits because now they've got a hit on their hands, but they can't sell it into any of these, you know, many different regions, markets, etc. So they go behind Usna and Gordon's back and they edit a 92-minute version using like completely different takes, like using like cutting it from all of the raw footage basically, um, or at least footage from previous versions. Oh wow. Like that first two and a half hour cut. So it's a it's a very different film. It actually reintroduces the hypnosis subplot from Dr. Hill, for example. Okay. So and they submitted that to the MPAA and the MPAA gave them the R rating that they were looking for. That's how they were able to get the 92-minute version by using the non-graphic material that ended up being cut out of the film, right? Well, here's the interesting thing about that. The way that copyright laws work is that now that's the official version. Once it's rated, that becomes the official version, and any previous versions that were not rated become illegal for exhibition under current law. So now Yuzna and Gordon cannot show their version of their film that that has spent the last few years gaining cult status because the distributor got the rated version and now that's the official version. And so every single time Yuzna and Gordon would do an, uh, an exhibition, which to be honest, Yuzna's credit, it was really him driving a lot of that. He would have to go get special permission from the MPAA to exhibit the film. And so eventually he got so frustrated with this, he then went behind his distributor's back, took the film back to the MPAA and said, hey, I want you to rescind your rating. And they're like, what? We've literally (laughs) never done that in our life. He's like, yeah, no, I know, but I need you to rescind the R rating. And they're like, "Uh, okay, literally. So first and last time that the MPAA has ever rescinded an R rating from a film. Because he wanted his movie back. 
Yeah, and so and so from that point forward, he no longer had to go get permission and play by their rules and could just do whatever he wanted with it. So he financed it. It's his film. So which version did I watch? I wonder. So you watched the unrated version. That's yeah. what I thought. There's, uh, yeah, no that that that's the one that everybody knows, and that's the one that we all reference. The, okay, that's the one that everybody has seen is the unrated version. The R-rated version does exist out there. I believe in some of the more sensitive markets, you know, India. Uh, China, some places like that, that's probably the version that they have over there um, where censorship laws are more strict. Mm -hmm. But and then the the DVD actually has a lot of those deleted scenes that you can go back and check out. Interesting. They were pretty wisely cut. Um, and I I I think that there is a deluxe edition that might have the R-rated version on there. But if not, I'm pretty sure you can find it online without too much hassle these days. Sure. In case you ever wanted to check that out. And for anybody listening now, the one thing I will ask you lastly, before we kind of finish off, we didn't really talk about sort of like the look and the feel of like the photography of the film. And sure. you know, that seems to be with B movies. Uh, like I said, for, for me, it was really just, you know, the, the use of dollies. And I was impressed by the fact that again, for an 18 day shoot, they relied so heavily on those. And it allows me to sort of excuse the fact that a lot of them are very, sort of janky and you know they're they're not smooth shots by any means but they still do add a certain environment level of certain environment a certain feel and gordon himself you know came correct with regards to his motivation because he was basically watching a lot of stanley kubrick and roman polanski at the time and noting how for example you know anytime there was suspense about a, a character entering a room you know both of them had a both of them being polanski and kubrick had a an idea that, you know, you never set the camera up in the room and watch them enter. You know, we slowly enter the room with them so that we get that suspense of that reveal of wondering what's in there. And so that's why he employs a lot of the shots that he does. You sort of see him thinking in that way when he's setting up a lot of these shots. So I do appreciate that aspect of it. It doesn't look particularly great. Like it's fine. And actually, as a matter of fact, the original – so there was a photographer who was the original photographer hired. His name was Bob Ebinger, and he was actually let go after less than a week because all of the dailies were coming in very dark. And obviously Usna and, pa and Band and Pals weren't having that. But the sort of interesting thing is that Stuart Gordon actually takes credit for it being underlit because those were his instructions to Bob Ebinger. And he said that that was born out of a naivete because he had never shot film before, but he had directed a ton of stage productions. Oh, and so he okay. thought, yeah, he thought that film was going to pick up the visuals the same way the human eye would. And so he lit it as though it was a theatrical production and sort of insisted that, you know, things be underlit to, so that he could create the right mood. Then the dailies come back and no one can see anything. And he's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that, that might have been my fault. Yeah. But the cool thing is that we don't notice it when we watch the film today because the film has since undergone a 2K restoration. I believe it's a 2K restoration. Right. And so a lot of that missing detail has since been brought back to light. Well, and that's what I was reading about, too, just very quickly about that uh, VHS boom is like that's such a fun medium to watch these classic schlocky horror films on because they hide a lot of the mistakes that you're like you're talking about. And so the makeup looks cooler. The violence looks better. You know, a lot of these up reses 
um, though they can do justice to some films, can actually be a detriment to others because now you're really spotlighting in 4K or 2K uh, up res, you know, what people were making for two used condoms and a nickel back then. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so that looks cool. Like you don't cinema. need to see the boom mic in that scene over the right, dude's head, right? right? It was all washed out before. We never saw it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes these things are obscured for a reason and, and it's it's a better format to watch on VHS or in a in an old Flickr uh, filled, you know, uh, film house, you know, grindhouse theater, or even a drive-in, uh, like you said earlier with the B movie thing. So, um, I will say that one thing that stood out to me an insane amount of times about this movie is, um, all throughout, uh, what stood out about this is the two point lighting, the use of two point lighting. So it'd be really, uh, you know, lit on one side of the face, a really dark and obscure on the other side and a really powerfully bright hair light. Uh, as an accent yeah. uh, going over their shoulders. So uh, one and two point lighting, very minimalist lighting. So that's probably why a lot of this stuff was coming back a little underexposed as well. Um, but uh, they were really playing around with some lighting extremes. What if we put the lights here or there? Um, but it's not your typical three point lighting. It's very harsh two point lighting. Uh, if you watch and, and you go back, even if you go on IMDb, I'm looking at it right now. If you, if you go for a little scroll on IMDb, look at some of the still photos and absolutely you'll look, you'll be like, dude, there it is. Two point lighting, really dark in the middle, really dark on certain sides of the face. But yeah, all very minimalist. Um, I will wrap this up and, and pass it right back to you. But one thing that I will say very quickly is how refreshing it was after two films or three films in a row of bleach bypass to get some really vibrant color <laughs> and fluorescent lighting and that bright green ooze and the whole bit. Uh, we, we did, uh, was it a Morris Peros and, and, uh, old boy was bleach pie pass. Yeah. And then of course, elephant man was black and white. So here we are in the good old vibrant purple and pink gelled eighties. And, uh, I love it. So good. Yeah, absolutely. And also speaking of certain visuals being obscured, I will also throw out a quick story where a lot of these bodies were naked, right? A lot of the zombies. And so especially where, you know, there's some of the more interaction between the two of them. Well, okay. Quick note too, by the way, one of the things about Gordon, Stuart Gordon and his wife in the organic theater as a whole <laughs> is that. I hope you're going where I think you're going. Cause I think we talked about this they were, on. Yeah, they're very into counterculture. So they were like borderline nudists yep. to the point that they actually did a lot of entirely nude performances at the theater itself with everyone to the point that I believe they got arrested for they it. They did? Even. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Peter and Pan. So he, they were on stage naked for Peter Pan. Okay, yeah. And so they ended up, you know, a lot of these people that they were using were from the organic theater. So they were all very comfortable being naked around one another. And so a lot of the zombies, again, you know, they didn't really have any special needs. It wasn't, you know, like set sensitivity and all the sort of stuff that you have, right? They were all very comfortable among one another. And to the point that there was actually a scene. So they, they, they being Yuzna and Gordon were still under the impression as they were shooting it that they were going to be able to secure an R rating. Obviously, that wouldn't be the case. So there's one scene in particular where they're fighting the zombie. It's the Peter Kent, you know, Schwarzenegger's body double zombie. And they were getting a lot of dong swinging around, right? And, <laughs> and, the, and the way that it was lit, it was just like it just kept coming on, on camera. And so the new the new photographer, by the way, Mac Alberg or Alberg, who actually ended up shooting the bulk of the film, he replaced Bob Ebinger. Yeah, he was just like, we keep seeing the penis, man. Like, I don't know what to do. You know, go to the makeup lady and get the Merkins. 
Now, for anybody listening who doesn't know, a merkin is basically a little flesh-colored pocket, so to speak, that basically goes over your junk. And it's like a pubic wig so that, you know, the, the, the anatomy is covered and there's no accidental touching of, you know, things of that nature, right? Um, and it also prevents those things from appearing on camera if they happen to catch light. So, you know, they're like, hey, we're just we're getting a bunch of dong, you know, grab the makeup lady, grab the Merkins. So they go to the makeup lady and she's like, what do you mean Merkins? And they're like, yeah, all those Merkins we bought. And they're like, and she goes, well, we're all so comfortable with another. We didn't need them. I threw them all away. Like, what do you mean you threw away all the Merkins? They're like, yeah, <laughs> no, I, we, we, we literally don't have them. And it was like one of the last days of shooting. They didn't have enough time to get them. So they're like, well, how are we going to shoot this scene? And I, I don't know who it was, but somebody had the suggestion like, what if we just spray paint his dong black so that it doesn't actually appear on film? Oh, <laughs> so wow. that entire sequence where Dan and Megan are running to the elevator and get accosted by the Peter Kent zombie, they actually spray painted his dong black and all of the pubic <laughs> hair so that it just wouldn't show up on film if light happened to catch it because the makeup lady threw away all the Merkins. Little underexposed dong there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. And then, you know, when we get back to the film, we're wrapping up again. All this attack is going on. We see that Dean Halsey finally sort of remembers his old life and his daughter. So he ends up turning, you know, attacking the zombies. He's able to gouge Dr. Hill's eyes out and then he squeezes his head and this body is just sort of exploding and decomposing. Very suddenly, for reasons I can't really explain by way of physics, his intestine shoots out of his body. I guess we'll just chalk that up to the serum as well. Ends up wrapping around Herbert West. This is where Dan and Meg are escaping. Yeah, because doesn't he, like, over-inject him? He gets, like, two two syringes, and he's like, you know, overdose, and boom, he, like, jams the body full of two. And then, like, I'm assuming that, like, over-animates the organs of the body, hence his intestines bursting out and animating in a very mother from uh brain dead slash dead alive kind of way at the very end of that movie yeah no that works for me i, I dig that logic and we're gonna go ahead and move forward with <laughs> sure that that's fine <laughs> and like i said we see dan and meg they're trying to escape but they're attacked and then megan actually gets killed and so dan brings her to the hospital to try to resuscitate her but it's not happening she is dead and that is when our composer brings back the subtle theme music, letting us know what is going on in Dan's head. And so it's no surprise that very shortly thereafter, he turns back, opens up the bag, grabs the serum, looks very lovingly onto Meg, says, I love you, and then goes to inject it as we end on a freeze frame like every good 80s horror film should. Fade to black while that serum still glows green. We're left on that glowing green serum as we hear a scream off screen that Gordon actually admitted was influenced from the book Pet Cemetery. Oh. Apparently that happens at the end of the book Pet Cemetery. Interesting. And then the film ends. And that is our experience with Reanimator. So definitely a fun time at the movies. Before we do wrap this up formally, do want to invite you all to go ahead and if you enjoy the show, please let your friends know. Uh, word of mouth is fantastic, and but the specific thing you can do right now to help us out is go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you might be listening to. And hey, if you listen to us on the website, just go over to Apple. Just Whatever you do, just give us your rating over there. It helps us out. We certainly appreciate you listening, and we certainly appreciate you helping to spread the word. 
with that out of the way, Ryan, let's go ahead and let's wrap things up formally as we do. Firstly, with three adjectives, I will let you start. Uh, they're probably very similar to yours. We'll just get these out of the way because they speak for themselves. Fun, because it is. It's a fun movie. Um, I had a lot of fun watching this. Schlocky, because it also is that. Uh, you could be both of those things. And Time Capsule. Because it did take me back. Uh, this is Nostalgia Berries. Uh, you know, not, not just this movie in particular, but all the ones like it. And going to the video store and the box art films, which is what led me to the look that shit up and the VHS boom and go down that wormhole. It was just all so much fun to go back to those days. I wish, uh, as much as I love the convenience of streaming, and I'm so glad that I'm growing old in the days of the most amount of convenience, um, there was something to be said for it being an event to get a movie like this and going home and watching it with your friends uh, over pizzas and stuff. So, yeah, time capsule. Fun, schlocky time capsule. How about you, buddy? Absolutely. I have uh, bloody, breezy fun, which I actually feel like is all set for a box art quote. Yeah, I love it. A lot of... Yeah, people also people don't realize that was the original CoverGirl slogan. I was going to say. It didn't really test well, so yeah. then they changed it to Easy Breezy Beautiful. But Breezy stayed in there. It was a bloody, bloody breezy fun? Bloody breezy fun, yeah. Tampax slogan. Let's do this. <laughs> bloody breezy fun <laughs> for slogan. Reanimator. That amounts to a star rating. Again, for anyone listening that might be new to the show, I give star ratings. Ryan gives grade ratings. We'll explain it to you another time down the road. My star rating for this film is four and a quarter out of five stars. It's awesome. a great film. It was fun. But it is light again. You know, it's not it, it doesn't have a ton of meat on the bone the way that, you know, so many of these criterion films and prestige dramas do. And but you know what? You know, sometimes when you've had a bunch of those back to back, there is absolutely nothing wrong. Like like we said at the top of this episode, I think it's the perfect description. It's a palate cleanser. Yep. You know, it, it, it's a it's a smooth drink that goes down quick and, and gets to work fast. And uh, it's, it's a great exp- we're, you know, we're all the better for being able to have that experience. Four and a quarter stars out of five for old, your old boy, Jason. Ryan, what you got? Hey, man, you know, for as much as you're saying this is light and, uh, you know, quick and easy, we I, somehow we squeezed out a longer episode out of Reanimator than we did out of the almost three hour long Sundance winner, uh, Amoris Peros. So, <laughs> yeah, here we are. On that note, too, by the way, worth noting, somehow this film does end up winning the Critics' Choice Award at the Cannes Film Festival oh, wow. in 84 or whatever. Which I is did not absurd. know that. I did not Absolutely see that at all. Absurd, but good on them. I did not even think to look about, uh, look up about uh, what awards this might have won. <laughs> that wasn't even on my no, radar. I yeah, Absolutely I was like, insane. I wonder what You'd this did in the. Uh, yeah, no. Um, yeah, I'm giving this one. Well, what's a B- your grade rating? I'm giving this one a B plus, Jason. I really enjoyed this nice. movie for Perfect. all the reasons. I think yeah. we're in the same wheelhouse. You might have actually given this same, one a little yeah. higher than me, but uh, yeah, we're in the same wheelhouse. B plus. It's a B movie. Awesome. <laughs> and we mean that in the best of way. In the B best for way. best. It's the best movie. That's yeah. what we mean by B. It's movie. not even an hour and a half, guys. You can go watch this right now. It's fantastic. Do it. Uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And after you do, you need to reach out to us and let us know what you thought about the movie, man. We are hungry for your feedback. We have got a few different ways you can reach out to us. We do have the socials. It looks like uh, Twitter is uh, just a burning wreckage that uh, will not be 
not be long in the teeth here. So, but in the meantime, you can hit us up on the Instagram and I don't know, I really hope we don't end up on TikTok, but maybe we will someday. Just, you know, the whole surveillance thing is bad. But regardless, you can still get hit us up on the Twitter and Instagram for right now. You can also email us. That's probably going to be the best. The email will not go away. That is esotericacinema at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Let us know what you think about whatever pastry you happen to be enjoying right now. You can even just talk about the weather. Doesn't matter. Hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Esotericacinema at gmail.com. Or even more preferred, you can call the Esoterica Cinema Hotline. It's an 818 number, 483-6285. Let us know what you thought about this film, Reanimator, our previous films, Amores Peros, Elephant Man. Maybe you listen to our five-minute reviews. You have strong opinions on Sign of the Cross or 12 Monkeys. Any of these things, you can go ahead and call that hotline. And if you would like, we would love to put whatever your message is on the air. If, however, you would just like to speak to us and don't wish to hear your voice, you can let us know that you don't want it. We'd just love to hear from you. Again, 818-483-6285. Now, there is, of course, another place that you can go to check us out, and that would be the website. Maybe you're there right now listening to us through our web player. That would be esotericacinema.com. We have the last four episodes available to listen to immediately on the front page. And then we have a link to our web player that houses every single episode we have ever released, which is like 150 if you count all of our bonuses and sketches and five-minute reviews and lengthy reviews you know if you're if you're just if you don't know that we have all of those other features going on please go check out the website or the streaming platform tons and tons of content out there now in addition to the web players and all that good stuff there is a little link that you can use to email us directly through there but more importantly that is where we have our master list the master list the master list of all 200 films that we go to the well, if you will, at the end of every episode from which we dip our bucket into and pull up next week's film for review. And so as such, I think, Ryan, if you agree, this would be a good time to go ahead and do that. What do you think? Let's do business. All right. Ryan always likes this part so he can see how the next week or two of his is going to go. Is it going to be lighthearted? Is it going to be intense? Is it going to be heavy? Who's to say? If you would like to play along, you can either download the PDF from the website or you can just go there, esotericacinema.com. We've got it right there on the main page. You can skip three, one, two, three pages that have all 200 films and play along with us as we select the film using our random.org true random number generator. All I will ask is that if you are listening to this while driving, please do not play along and get yourself in an accident. So for anybody at home or out in the park walking their dog and you have access to that, pull it up right now. The master list. We get through one through 200 and we click generate the wheel spins. Ooh, let's go. It spins. It spins. It spins. Now, Jason, it isn't this on? the uh, isn't this the penultimate uh, choice here for the end of our season? Indeed, it is. Oh, Indeed, it is. Man, we're getting down to it. And we are going to get number 74. 74. So 74 yes! has not been picked. 74 absolutely has not been picked. Oh, and this is uh oh, yeah, we are baby. going back into our strange well, I love so it. to speak. Getting I love some it. of that psychedelic water. Now, this is a film that I have not seen, number 74. Let's real quick take a look at what we didn't see. Uh we didn't see number 73, which was Ikiru, which is the classic Kira Kurosawa film. Uh, very, very, very heartwarming film there. And we didn't get number 75, which Ryan is one of yours and my favorite Kung Fu hustle, just batshit crazy. All I over cannot the place. wait to talk about that with you someday. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, instead we got actually what appears to be the only J film on our entire list. So I guess when we go to the well to select season four's films, we might have to get another J one in there because we are looking at Adrian Lin's Jacob's Ladder starring Tim Robbins. I've never seen this before. I've heard it referenced a million times. I know it's kind of of the, you know, David Lynch and uh, Cronenberg style sort of weird body horror, maybe, you know, stuff jumping around. Uh, and yeah, I don't know really why I never saw this one. It seems like the type of film that I would have caught somewhere along the way, but not the case. So very much looking forward to finally being able to watch Jacob's Ladder. Ryan, do you have a description for us? I do. Let me just start by saying this is a weird one from Adrian Lynn. Adrian Lynn, uh, for those that don't know, gave us movies like Flashdance, Indecent Proposal, Fatal Attraction. Um, he was kind of known as that uh, nine and a half weeks. He was that sultry kind of um B movie yeah, rom- made, made romantic thrillers. Yeah. And um, then now comes a lot, of, a lot of Skidamax sequences. Dead smack in the middle of his uh, you know, roster of movies is Jacob's Ladder, this psychedelic horror film starring Tim Robbins. And I cannot wait to experience this. I've heard nothing but good things. Google has this summarized as after returning home from the Vietnam War, veteran Jacob Singer. Uh, of the titular ladder uh, struggles to maintain his sanity plagued by hallucinations and flashbacks singer rapidly falls apart as the world and people around him morph and twist into disturbing images his girlfriend jesse played by elizabeth pena and his ex-wife sarah played by patricia calimber uh try to help but to little avail even singer's chiropractor friend louis played by danny aiello we get some danny aiello in here fails to reach him as he descends into madness this is from 1990 yeah <laughs> I'm re- pretty pretty stoked about this. Definitely. Yeah, me too. So for everybody listening, hopefully you enjoyed our discussion of Reanimator. We will be dipping into the genre well once again next week as, you know, we pretty much only do prestige films and genre films with no in between. So go ahead and watch Jacob's Ladder in anticipation of our next episode. In the meantime, for Jason Peters and Ryan Siebold, thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the movies.